Kids make you see things about yourself, don't they? They tell you straight to your face. Kids declare the beauty and simplicity of the world uh, around us. Kids often show um, how really to love people and how to be loved. Uh, Whose children are you talking about? Yeah, you might be thinking that as well. Um, And in this passage that I'm going to be reading uh, this morning, uh, that we're going to be reading this morning, we see Jesus' heart for children and how he wants us all to display their all-out faith and love for them, only like children do. A beautiful, vulnerable, precious dependence, if you like. And really, that's the challenge I feel to us this morning. You see, when you first look at the life of Jesus, he wasn't particularly eye-catching. Uh, born, in the back of beyond ta- born in the back of beyond town in Palestine to a poor teenage unmarried mum, a man who never travelled more than a few hundred miles from his, from his home, never held political office, never wrote a book, never, uh, never got married, never had sex, never attended university or college, never, attended a big, never went to a big city, never won X Factor. Yet somehow, today, this very Jesus is the very reason why billions, billions of people around the globe call themselves Christian and worship him as God. How come? Phenomenal that, really. And so this morning I would like to give you a glimpse, if you like, of what this man is all about, this God-man is all about, the most influential man in all of history. And I often say this, That is an uncontroversial statement. So let's read the passage and see what it says. Mark 10, verses 13 to 45, bits and pieces. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. They told them off. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He was angry. He said to them, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. And, and, and then he took the children in his arm, arms, placed his hands on them, and bless them, just like we were doing this morning. And so then in the story, the disciples, Jesus' closest followers, do exactly the opposite. Instead of being childlike, they start to have a bit of a barney, an argument. They start demonstrating their childishness rather than their childlikeness. And so it continues. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, that one of, two of the disciples, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want for me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in all of your glory. Let's be top of the pops. We want to be high up there in your cabinet, Jesus, when you win. Why? Because we're the cream of the crop, aren't we, Jesus? Jesus replies, You do not know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism that I'm about to be baptised with? In other words, die. We can, they answered. They didn't know what they were talking about. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup and be baptised with with the baptism I am baptised with. And then he says this, listen. 
Jesus called them together and said, Whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. Now hear this. For even the Son of Man, God himself in Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what we're going to be exploring this morning. Yeah, Lord, I thank you. We're going to pray first. Yeah, Lord, I thank you that, uh, for, for, for Jubilee Church Teesside. I thank you, Lord, uh, that you have called us into your plans and purposes, that you have uh, forgiven us, have brought you into a wonderful, life-giving relationship with you, that you've set us free from all the rat race and, and, uh, 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 and living for other things. But now we are called to live for you, to follow you, to be your children. Uh, and I pray, Lord God, as I uh, unpack this little message, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will touch us this morning, whether we trust in you or not, that you will speak to us this morning with, all, with power and confidence and all your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So th- I'm afraid I've got a bit of a cold this morning, so I'm going to be a bit croaky. Uh, three things this morning exploring this big question. Why did Jesus have to die? About 17 years ago, uh, I was sitting in a church in York one morning. I was training in York at the time to be a GP. So I was sitting in this church, very much a spectator in the crowd. That might be like you this morning. Um, and, And someone probably much more eloquent than me was talking about this very same question. And quite surprisingly, Jesus got me right there, right then. In those few moments, he turned me from a spectator to a believer, radically changed forever. Can I just say, before I kick off, that could be you this morning. So watch out. This Jesus is real. So three things that I'm going to be talking about this morning. What did Jesus come to do? Why did he come to do it? And what does that mean for us? So what? So let's go. And remember, watch out. At the end of the message, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. No pressure, but I'm going to give you an opportunity. I'm going to give you a little space to respond to Jesus' life-giving message. All of you. So firstly, what did Jesus come to do? The big question. What did Jesus come to do? Jesus, in a nutshell, Jesus, in a nutshell, came to die. Phenomenal, really, that. In this passage, Jesus states that that primarily his purpose of coming to the earth voluntarily was to suffer and die, to be killed. This was his main mission, his mission impossible, if you like. It says in uh, in the verse we've just read, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And as Jesus declares this um, this very unique point, he departs company from all other religious founders of the world. Did you know that? When, you look, when, when, when we look at all the other founders of all the other world, uh, major world religions, all of them overcame their enemies and lived to a ripe old age, actually. When Moses died, he was an old geezer. Yet Deuteronomy tells us, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. Wow. Confucius died in his 70s, surrounded by his disciples. 
an honored man in his hometown. Buddha died at the age of 80 in complete serenity, surrounded by his disciples. Muhammad died full of years as the, as the ruler of a united Arabia. They all overcame their enemies. They all have birthed major religions. But Jesus, the founder of the globe's biggest faith, wasn't like that. He was considered, at the end of his life, a criminal worthy of execution. In fact, the Jewish encyclopedia says this about Jesus' dying last words on the cross. It said uh, about his dying last words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says about those words, these, This last utterance was in all its implications itself disproof of the exaggerated claims made for him after his death by his disciples. No Messiah, no God could ever, ever suffer such a death. Think about that. That's just common sense, isn't it? That's what I thought 17 years ago. Yet amazingly, hear this, amazingly, history tells a totally different story. Jesus died and his death and resurrection immediately became the source of life and faith to many in his time and thereafter. Something happened to his followers that overcame their deep, deep unbelief. Something happened, historical fact, for the disciples, for the early Christians, that changed the cross from a proof of defeat into a badge of honour from a tragedy to a bottomless source of joy, from a terrible event to a greater future hope for all the suffering and persecution that these early Christians had ahead of them. Jesus came to die, and it wasn't an accident. It was his plan, God's plan, no one else's. Let that sink in for a moment. Why on earth would God do that? Well, there's two bits to this answer, really, I think. Firstly, there's the problem. And secondly, there's the answer. The problem and the answer. So first, the problem. See what, the, see what that verse at the end again says. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as, what did we read? A ransom. For many. A ransom for many. When, now, when we look at the word uh, ransom, or certainly when I do, I think of films, um, we tend to think about films like um, Ransom by, uh, with Mel Gibson in it, or Kiefer Sutherland, 24, on the telephone, following instructions, getting all heated as the time deadline gets closer and closer and closer. That's what we think about ransoms generally, don't we? Or is it just me? But here, the pe- but here the people of Jesus' day will have un- understood that Greek word litron slightly differently, ransom. One expert says of that word litron, the word litron, ransom, took its origin from the practice of warfare, where it was the price paid to bring a prisoner of war out of his captivity and slavery into freedom. And this is the word that Jesus uses to describe the greatest problem of all. Sin. 
In John 8.34, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, everyone who commits sin surrenders his freedom to sin. He is a slave to sin's power. That's the problem according to Jesus. That's what we need setting free from. You see, this world is not as it should be. Have you ever noticed that? Do you ever get that feeling? Of course you do. Every day you do. Turn on the telly. The English playwright made it personal, looked into his own heart. The English playwright, uh, Somerset Morgan, once said, if I wrote down every thought I ever thought and every deed that I've ever done, men would call me a monster of depravity. Over the years, societies, clever people have tried to come up with better reasons than Jesus for explaining why the world is is as it is. Biological theories, genetic theories, psychological theories, social theories, they're all out there. We've even tried to look for creative solutions based on our reasoning and thinking and our progress. Do this, do that, it'll all be okay. But it's not. And Jesus again, uh, and Jesus against the tide of the times, very sophisticatedly really, states that the reason behind all other reasons for the mess of the world isn't the financial crash, isn't the crime statistics, isn't uh, post-political strategy, isn't the environment, isn't um, our upbringing, isn't the educational system. Don't hear what I'm not saying. These things are all important. They really are. Jesus, God, has a lot to say about all those other things too. But he states categorically, hands down, that the reason beneath all other reasons is our slavery to sin. Romans 3.23 famously, offensively really to a lot of us, declares all, all, all. Turn to your neighbour and say all. No, you don't need to. All. Someone used to say, what part of all do you not understand? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the great leveller of humanity. So what is sin? If it's that important, what is it? Let me give you this definition to get you thinking. You might not have thought about it this uh, You might not have thought about it this, uh, this way, but here goes. Sin, here this sin, is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity and worth and security in your relationship and service to God, to Jesus. That's what the Bible says sin is. The first of the Ten Commandments, actually. Sin is, leave me alone, God. I don't need you. I can make it on my own. You only get in the way. You spoil everything. You take away my freedom. A despairing self-centeredness, self-righteousness that shuts God out. The very source of our light, life and joy. That's what the Bible would say. That's what Jesus calls sin. Have you ever thought about it that way? A lot of you, before you came into the room, might have thought, I'm not a sinner. But we can all put our hands up to that that now, can't we? Sin. Jesus said it's what comes out of a person that pollutes him or her. Obscenities, lusts, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, depravity, deceptive dealings, mean looks, slander, arrogance, foolishness, 
I think that about includes most of us, or all of us, um, in some way or another. All these things are vomit from the heart, says Jesus. A heart that is in rebellion towards God. That's what Jesus says is the root cause diagnosis. As a GP, I like diagnosis. And let me tell you, Calpol is not the answer here. <laughs> what I usually use. Without God, we spiritually die. Humanity spiritually rots. It's there all around us. Sin is a very sophisticated and nuanced description of the problem of our day. And actually, when you read into philosophy these days, are the clever people with the big beards and the glasses are cottoning onto this. Sin, the problem. But secondly, Jesus says, there is a solution to this problem, sin. Thank goodness. Now, I know a lot of all that, I know all that I've just said sounds a bit doom and gloom. What have I come here for? Some of you might be asking. But really, knowing the diagnosis um, actually brings hope. It does. You see, in the midst of this very doom and gloom, despairing problem, Jesus declares what? I am the ransom. I am the one who gave up all the majesty of heaven and became just a man. Think about that for a second. Why did he do that? To free you from la- your, your life's slavery to sin. The biggest problem. But question, which most people always ask, did Jesus really have to die to do that? Couldn't, just, couldn't God have just let us off? You're a good enough kind of bloke, God. Let it go. Two things about that, just to help us understand this difficult question. And one is about forgiveness and the other is about justice. Firstly, forgiveness. Real forgiveness, if you think about it, really think about it, only comes at a cost. You cannot forgive someone without it hurting or burdening you. You can't. Forgiveness is much, much more complex than you actually think. Let me give you an example. Uh, If I woke up one morning and walked outside, and as I was walking over to my car, someone came running up. Imagine someone comes running up from the street opposite and uh, started beating up my car with a crowbar. Bang, 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 laughing all the way. What would I be thinking? What would you be thinking? Yep, that's right, just another day in Teesside. (laughs) No, I'd be fuming. What on earth is going on? What on earth are you doing, crazy crowbar man? And then just say a policeman pops up. Um, and after a little conversation with crazy, guy, crazy crowbar man, he comes over to me and says, look, the guy's now really sorry, just let it go, forgive him. What would I be thinking now? What would you be thinking? Give me that crowbar. I'll show you what it looks like to let it go. Do you see the problem? For, do you see the problem? For me, to let him go means I must take on the burden. The cost of repairing the motor in the first place, but also I must take on all the rage, all the upset of letting him go. Or I could say, officer, give him all he deserves. What's the point? The point is, forgiveness costs. The burden of forgiveness must be taken on by someone. The cost, the debt, doesn't just vanish. 
into thin air. It has to go somewhere. If it's like that for us, what must it be like for God? So that's the reality of forgiveness. What about justice? Here's the other thing. Think about this. If you love the young man, crazy crowbar man, if you love justice, if you love this man, and if you love justice and righteousness, would it be good just to say to him, let it go? Would that be right? Therefore, here's where we get stuck. It's really pretty remarkable, really. The more loving you are, the bigger the problem. The more loving you are, the bigger the problem of letting it go. The more insoluble the problem of forgiveness and saying, it's okay. Therefore, anyone who says, why can't God just let it go? The problem is this. You can't even do that. How can you expect him to? Look, you and I have a sense of justice that makes it tough to forgive. But hear this, God's nature, his very being, is the justice that you're sensing. He's the one who put it there. Forgiveness and justice. Now pause for a moment. Do you see the beauty of the cross now? On the cross, amazingly, we see both of these realities forgiveness and justice addressed. In his love, in his compassion, by grace. On the cross, the costly suffering of forgiveness is taken on by him, God, not us, um, uh, not us, for us. The ransom is taken by him and justice is, justice is upheld even though we go free. Do you see it? Do you get the enormity of what you're hearing about this awesome, loving, beautiful God? Dorothy L. Sayers uh, noted that people who are filled with horrified indignation and anger whenever a cat kills a sparrow can hear the story of the killing of God and not experience any shock at all. Is that you? Or will you take the cross seriously and more deeply this morning? John 3.16 very famously said, For God loved the world, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever, that could be you this morning, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Wow. That's what Jesus has done for you. A totally free gift. You didn't earn it. It's not because you're a clever guy. It's not because you're a good person. No, it's all of grace. It's all of Jesus. He is the solution. He is the ransom. So what? Finally, so what? So what if Jesus died on a cross to forgive me? So what if God loves me? How does that make any difference to my life? Will Monday morning be any different? Finally, briefly, Jesus says, we need to become like a little child. That's where we started off, didn't we? That's the final point. That's actually the whole point that Jesus is making. What's he getting at? Well, he's saying at the very centre of a child's being is something called trust. They look to us for everything. 
They expect us to love them, show them what to do, nurture them, grow them. Daddy, look at me, you do it, come with me. Again, Daddy, again. It's the very nature of a child, isn't it? I saw David, I think it was David, run up and almost knock Lisa down as, she, as he grabbed her in his arms. Jesus wants you to make it personal, like the trusting heart of a child. That's what Jesus is saying here. Trust, vulnerability, faith, actually. That's what Jesus is saying. Will you, will you let go of your pride and cling on to Jesus' hope like a child? Will you uh, not stop just knowing all this information here, but actually, will you take the, a big step, a leap of faith, actually, a life-changing leap, actually, and make it real here where it matters? Will you make it personal? That's the challenge for everybody that lives in this world. To end, stories change our heart. Let's end with a real story. I'm just going to read an account from it, from a, uh, from a newspaper at the time, an American newspaper. And it says this, a little story. Like all great mysteries, this begins with a corpse. On January 13, 1982, Air Florida Flight 90 smashed nose first into the rock-solid ice covering the Potomac River just outside Washington, D.C., to horrified onlookers, it seemed impossible that anyone could be alive inside the mangled steel carcass slowly vanishing into the water. But one by one, six survivors gasped to the surface and grabbed desperately at the tail of the plane. They had to, they had to swim up past their dead friends, seatmates and spouses to escape. They knew that unless they were pulled out fast, they'd soon be sinking down to join them. Just hanging on was agony. The six survivors had fractured arms, shattered legs, and their hands were freezing into claws that slipped from the wet steel. Help us, they screamed. We're going to die out here. Twenty minutes after the crash, the sun was going down, and no one had been able to reach the six survivors. They were doomed. Until suddenly, miraculously, a rescue chopper came whisking across the darkening sky. There was a man who seemed most with it, most visible, Arland D. Williams was his name, chubbed to his friends, for whatever reason. So they dropped a life ring right into his hands, expecting him to come up first. Then things turned really strange. When they lowered the lifeline to him and pulled it back up, there was somebody else in the harness. The second time they lowered it to him, the same again happened. There was somebody else in it. The third time they lowered it, again, somebody else. And again, and again. Every time, he wasn't there. Every time, he gave his place of salvation to somebody else. But the last time they went back, it was different. No one came back up, and Arlen D. Williams was gone. He had sunk, he had died. Doing what? 
substituting himself, giving them his place of deliverance. He took their destruction that was coming upon them. He gave them his rescue. That's a true story. Question, are you moved? Some of you are crying. Why? I tell you why. Because that is the most beautiful thing we know. Giving one's life for someone else. It just takes your breath away. It does something here. It's the stuff of great movies, poems, books. But Jesus' story goes one better. This story, the story of all stories, the great story of history, tells you personally that the God of the universe, all-powerful, almighty, all-perfect, all-glorious, all-majestic, King of kings, Lord of lords, loves you, you, you. How much? This much. Not coming to be served, but to serve you and to give his life for you as a ransom for you and many others. The band can come up, that would be great. Hebrews 11 says, For the joy set before him, listen to this, for the joy set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What joy is that talking about? doesn't sound like joy to me. But get this. This is what this verse is saying, this truth in the Bible, this description of the, of the joy news of Jesus, the cross. You were the joy that put Jesus there. You were his heart's desire. You still are. And the question he puts before you this morning is this. Will you run into his arms like a child, putting your trust in him, letting him be your ransom, conquering the greatest problem of life forever, sin. Will you? Spurgeon, the great Bible teacher, uh, said, Jesus was up on the cross, hurting, bleeding, dying, looking down at the people, forsaking him, denying him, and betraying him. And, the gra- and in the greatest act of love ever seen in the universe, he stared for you. Hear this. His story changes your story forever. But you've got to make it personal. Let's stand. Let's stand. I just feel, we've got a few moments, I just feel it would be good to pray for people this morning. No pressure if you're a visitor here and you do not want to be prayed for, that is totally fine. But I also believe in a crowd this large, there'll be people who want to be prayed for. There'll be people here this morning who will be touched by the joy news, the gospel of Jesus, what Jesus has done on the cross. For some people here, it'll, it, it, you know, th- these things make sense. You might have come with your friends and have been wondering, what is it in him or her or this family that makes a difference? 
So I just want to pray for us. I just want us to uh, respond in prayer. And there's three things really. I believe there are people here this morning who just want to be healed, who just want the healing touch of God on their lives. There are people with pains, there are people with depression, anxieties. There's a whole load of different things here. Because, you know, as a GP, I know that. Yeah. I've got a cough and a cold, but there's other things out there that Jesus in his compassion and mightiness wants to touch. So if that's you, let's go to the sides, let's come to the front and we're going to pray for you. Okay? The second thing is I just feel that there's people here who want to see more of the power of the gospel released into lives. Those of you who believe in Jesus, you want to see the story of Jesus really affecting your story here and now in terms of faith to go, to do, to expect more of this wonderful Jesus. And thirdly, I believe the people here who do not know Jesus, who do not know this Jesus personally. Let me give you an example. Just say, Simon wasn't a believer and I was Jesus. Just say, hard going to believe. And we were walking down and suddenly I just got up and jumped in the river. What would Simon be thinking? Crazy man? Needs medication? Yeah. Just say Simon fell into the river and then I went in and jumped in after him and saved his life and in doing that, died. That would be a different thing altogether. That's what it means to make his death on the cross personal for you. So we're just going to play some we're just going to play a song now. And in that song I would like you to come out in faith and be prayed for. If you want healing this morning, go to the sides, come to the front quickly as we're singing. We don't want to drag this on for too long. So come forward, come to the sides if you want healing this morning. Secondly, if you want to see the gospel of Jesus, the power of Jesus' gospel released more into your life, so it looks like something more in your life, come out, come forward, come to the sides. And thirdly, if you're not a Christian here this morning, we would love to pray for you. We would love to invite you into the adventure that is with God forever.